0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back. I hope you all enjoyed my interview with Amanda. She gave us fantastic insight into her grad school application process, highlighted essential habits of top academic achievers to help everyone get good grades, and shared some very funny and relatable moments. Go check it out. If you haven't listened to it yet, you don't want to miss out. Today, I'm interviewing another friend of mine, John, We talk about everything from growing up in another country, all the way to John's philosophy on making potentially life-altering career decisions. Stay tuned for another great discussion. Hello, beautiful people. You're listening to The Pipette Profiles, a podcast all about STEM, health, and fitness. I am your host, Grace Schoenfeld, and together we will learn from successful engineers, scientists, and students about their passions, careers, and future ambitions. Want to be inspired? You're in the right place. John is currently an Associate Software Engineer at Evidation Health. clinical software company he began his undergraduate career at ucla studying bioengineering but soon transferred to westmont college in 2016 he graduated summa cum laude from westmont with a bs in engineering physics john has recently explored the idea of going to medical school so he went back to westmont to complete prerequisites Personally, he was born in Brazil to a missionary family, has moved 12 times in the past 10 years, and loves pool parties with his little cousins. Welcome, John. So good to have you on the show.
1: Hey, Grace. It's good to be here.
0: What was it like to be moving around that much?
1: Um, honestly, it's, it was a, it's been tough. It's been really difficult and uh, a big challenge. So part of it for me is I love new places, and I love moving and experiencing new cultures, So, you know, the quick little schematic of my movement was graduating high school and going to UCLA and then transferring back to home and then going to Westmont and then moving around a bunch of places in Santa Barbara and then back to Monterey and then out to Texas for a startup job after I graduated and then back to Monterey and then down to Orange County and then Santa Monica and then back to Santa Barbara and then a couple places in Santa Barbara. So a lot of it has been like chasing stuff. Yeah, it's been a lot.
0: Do you have places that you definitely do or do not want to live in again?
1: Oh gosh, um, I think I really miss the beach. That was something I realized when I moved to Texas. Because um, when I left Brazil and moved to the states, I like was by the beach or could see the beach wherever I lived. Like there, I remember mm-hmm. when I was at UCLA. There's a building on the north campus. You go to the very, you know, very top of the north campus. Go to this building. Go to the very, very top, and you stand on top of a table. You can see the ocean. <laughs> So, wow. yeah, so I, it was kind of tough. When I went to Texas, I realized I really love the ocean. I just kind of, I really missed it. So I've kind of, I've tried to make it a point to always live within like a five to 10 to 15 minute drive of the beach. Um, so that's kind of a difficult thing, but that kind of cuts out a lot of different options in the world.
0: Well, you got most of California.
1: Pretty much. So I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to like kind of start to break that a little bit because I'd love to visit more. It kind of like live inland a little bit for the U.S. and just visit a lot of great national parks and public land and kind of get to just see the wonderful countryside, uh, get away from California a bit. And I'd love to go overseas, go back to Brazil. So I'll probably get there eventually after I've, you know, been a bit more solid in my living for a bit. So yeah, at this point, I moved back to Santa Barbara because I was just like, I'm just so tired of moving. I just, I just need to be in one spot for a while. So And then the pandemic happened, so I had to move.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, that old thing. Yeah. Have you been able to go back to Brazil since you moved to the States?
1: I've been back twice. Uh, Once was a year after I left. Um,
0: How old were you? Really,
1: It was really – oh, I left when I was nine. Yeah. Um, So I think like like a week before my ninth birthday, which also kind of sucked. But anyway. I know, seriously. But it was really sweet. I remember I I went back – a year later, and I walked like there was a school assembly going on. I walked in, and then my old class saw me. Like it's John, he's Aww. here, and they all ran out of the assembly <laughs> to come say hi. That's and awesome. Chase me down. So, yeah, it was really really sweet. So it was a really small school. It was like it was K through twelve, and it was like twenty people per class. Wow. So absolutely tiny. Yeah, tiny tiny school. But hmm. so they all knew me, and I knew all of them. It was it was really sweet to do that. And then. Uh, after that, the second time I went back was right after I graduated high school, because both my older brothers had gotten married, um, and they kind of like had, were like, hey, why don't we like take a trip to Brazil, and then we can show you guys like where we grew up, and uh, this country, wonderful country and culture that's like so impacted us.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: we did that, and we kind of just traveled around Brazil a little bit, some of the main places we were at, Rio, São Paulo. Um, fun fact is... So me and my siblings all had the exact same uh, first grade teacher. Really? Yeah. It hasn't been mentioned, but there's a 15 year gap between me and my closest, or sorry, me and my eldest sibling, my sister. Hmm. I think there's 17 years between my sister and my little brother. So that's like the the widest gap. We all have the exact same first grade teacher. So it's kind of crazy.
0: That's really cool though.
1: Yeah, Yeah. And we went back like the same year she was graduated, like retiring. So it was a cool, like little coincidence.
0: Yeah. Did you get a chance to say goodbye? Yeah. So it was
1: just fun showing him. Yeah. And it wasn't like we were like super close to her, but it was nice just to kind of like as a family and like, as we were like, because my eldest brother had been married for a couple of years. My older brother married for like a year or two. Um, it was nice just to like have that family bonding experience of like, Hey, let's, let's go see this country that, you know, my parents spent 17 years there and we all like has profoundly impacted us. So that was nice.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like a cool experience. Thank you so much for sharing. For sure. So, did your interest in science start from a young age, or did it develop a little bit later?
1: Yeah, actually, I was a terrible student uh, when I was little. (laughs) I was absolutely, yeah, I was was terrible at it. Um, I still remember getting, like, C's and D's uh, growing up. Um,
0: Did you just not put effort in, or did you not understand it?
1: I'm not entirely sure, honestly. So... I, when I was little, it's just back at that like K through 12 school back in Brazil. Um, there was, so- I did some testing. There was something wonky about me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they weren't quite sure what it was. I've like found snippets and pieces of records, but they're not super clear. Hmm. Um, it's a little bit of a mystery, but what they knew was something neurologically wasn't quite wiring together just yet. Okay. So they thought like if they brought me out of, like regular class and have me practice different like movements, muscle movements that would help my brain like start to finish the wirings. So they pull me out and I do like puzzles and like chess and do like writing my letters, um, my handwriting. I still have terrible (laughs) handwriting, so it didn't help. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, there's like, there's, they thought there was something going on. So maybe that has something to do with me getting like B's and C's. Um, But eventually when I like moved to the States, I had some really tough, times like adjusting to american culture and u.s culture and making friends um so eventually i started spending a lot of time in the library just reading and that kind of like really awoke a love for learning and for understanding and i recognized how like how personally empowering it can be to understand and be able to cause differences in the world um Mm -hmm. And then after that, it was weird. It was like a switch. I was just a straight A student. It was really weird. It huh. was really strange. Um,
0: so did you ever figure out what was really going on?
1: Not really, no. It just kind of like it resolved itself. And it was weird because all my worst subjects became my best subjects.
0: That's interesting.
1: Like I was terrible at math and science. Um, and I was okay at some language stuff. And then it just it swapped. And it wasn't that like I was bad at language anymore. It was more just I was just really, really good at math and science.
0: Hmm. Well, lucky you.
1: Yeah, it's kind of weird, a little strange. And there's like a lot of like interesting research on like the neurodevelopment of like uh, I would fall I would probably fall into a category called TCK, Third Culture Kid.
0: Okay.
1: Um, People who grow up across distinctly different cultures. Like another good like like nest like kind of similar category is a cross cultural kid, which can happen in like the same country, like you know Asian American Asian. Uh, parents transfer and move to the states, so they have their home culture, and then their kids are growing up in America, so they're getting American culture at school, their ho- parents' culture at home, and then the kid has a tough time. Like they make are basically making their their, th- their own third culture, in a lot of ways. Hmm. Um, yeah, and so there is like some struggle of like who are they? How do they like deal with life? Um, a lot of these like bi- basic cultural questions that they really struggle with. And there's some of the interesting research that I found at least has suggested that that actually delays a lot of these like developmental milestones in their lives. Yeah, really kind of interesting. Like they don't have like a late teen like rebellious period. It's like a mid to late 20s rebellious period. Really, really interesting. Um, I think the thought. So
0: did you have that rebellious (laughs) period? Well,
1: I'm in my mid 20s right now. So I just turned 26. So I guess now's the time.
0: You can't do much Um, with COVID. (laughs)
1: yeah i can't leave yeah yeah. my rebellion is i walk outside and i take off my mask for like 20 (laughs) seconds (laughs) wow what a move i know seriously so there might be something to that in terms like why maybe that was the reason why like neurologically i wasn't quite wiring up but i was at like a school for like there's a lot of tck's at my school and i was still different from them so who knows but uh it was after like i was reading all those books and kind of recognized the importance of knowledge and just how cool it was to know stuff. Um, I became like a straight A student. And at that point, it was more just about like kind of just not being bored and just trying to stretch myself. So when I got to high school, like I started reading all these books. And so, like sixth and seventh grade, I was my usual student. And then eighth grade is like a flip just kind of a switch just kind of flipped. I was a straight A student all the way up through the end of high school. And in high school, I was just trying to like take as many classes as I could and just really push myself.
0: And you were also valedictorian Um, in your high school, right? Yeah. So whatever was going on didn't affect you after the switch flipped.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And that's, there's a little bit of a story to that too, because my year, there, yeah, there's a, it's a, I went to high school up in Carmel, California. Um, And for anyone who hasn't been to Carmel, it's absolutely gorgeous. Clint Eastwood was the mayor for a little bit. Um, It's kind of, a summer like a second house for a lot of like very 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 affluent people like
0: yeah it's such a beach town quaint but also very much for rich people
1: yeah exactly it's like if you took the cotswolds in britain and put it on the beach in carmel (laughs) yeah it's full of like not the top percent but the 0.001 percent of people Mm -hmm. like in terms of wealth
0: exactly um
1: so we are not struggling for school money and district money to be able to hire great teachers which is phenomenal um It's like one of the best, like, I think our public education was better than a lot of the private school educations there. Um, And it was free. It was great. Um, But because of that, there's a lot of, like, overachievers in school. And so the school is always, like, every year they were changing, like, how they decided the valedictorian. Like, two years before me, one guy, like, decided not to take any of his classes at high school. He took all of his classes at the local community college. Mm-hmm. Um, and he only took AP classes at high school. So he got like a 5.0. Oh, my God. He only took like AP and honor classes. It was crazy. So just lots of gaming in the system. So my year, they switched it up, and they said, all right, if you get straight A's, you're not guaranteed the auditorian. you become salutatorian, and then we're going to make a committee, and then we're going to pick the auditorian from the salutatorians. Yeah, so I've, I was very, very honored to be picked to, as the, the auditorian for my year. Um, and it definitely was not because I was the smartest or cleverest or kind or like anything else is more just they decided they wanted to have me speak and me being an example of like the kind of student they're trying to develop so I feel very very honored to have been picked for that
0: I feel like that's what a valedictorian should be somebody who embodies the ideals of the school whether or not it's perfect grades in gaming the system you know
1: right like I think the issue and like why there's such a pushback for it is especially nowadays when you're graduating high school that title of valedictorian versus salutatorian can have such a big effect.
0: Oh, yeah. In terms of
1: like where you're going to school, what your future is going to look like. Because um, it's just such a rat race now. So people are just fighting for any edge they can have. So like, I remember I went to UCLA and then like every single person in my major of bioengineering was, val- was valedictorian. It was it was weird. Like, it was all these people like are super smart, very personable. They can read, they can write, they can play music. It was Really, it was fun, too. And they were just fun people to hang around, so.
0: Well, that's good. It was
1: an interesting experience. Yeah, it's it's an interesting experience.
0: How did you choose UCLA?
1: Um, honestly, it was kind of two different things. One was I graduated high school, and they're like, hey, uh, you're really good at science and math, and there aren't a lot of people who are good at math and science. You should do something with that. Okay. So that was partly on my mind. Um, so I applied to a bunch of different programs, um, all in bioengineering both my older brothers did bioengineering at UC San Diego. Um, so I was a little familiar with the field and I knew like there's family precedence for doing it. Um, and so I got into Duke and UCLA and USC for bioengineering programs. Um, and then I ended up picking UCLA because it was the cheapest. So, cause I had gotten, I was really fortunate to be able to get some scholarship uh, both for UCLA and a bunch of scholarships I'd applied to outside of it. So the idea was if I go to the cheapest spot Um, it'll be less of a financial burden on my family who's already had to push three other kids through college and my little brother's coming up. Um, so I figured I'd try to make it as easy as possible for, for my family to kind of be able to pay the way. So that's what kind of why I picked UCLA. it was a good program and, you know, it was UCLA, it was a big school, lots of options. So I figured it'd be fun.
0: Yeah. You definitely get a traditional college experience at a big school like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd graduated from a small high school, it was absolutely tiny, um, so I felt like, oh yeah, I should go to a big school. That, that'd be a good change of pace.
0: Was the size difference overwhelming?
1: Um, it didn't feel super overwhelming to me. It was a little interesting because my major was tiny. They at the time only took 60 people per year. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it's absolutely like tiny is, is, I, I don't know how I got in really. It was a tiny like acceptance rate is like 3%, 4% acceptance rate for the wow. major itself. Um, and so that was kind of cool because like a very tight knit, community for your major um you knew everyone because it's only 60 people Mm -hmm. but um kind of you also had this anonymity from the rest of the college so it was a it was a weird experience because like you could easily put your headphones like get out walk out of your dorm room put your headphones in walk to class take your class and then walk back and not like talk to anyone or see anyone Um, very very different from westmont in that regard
0: Can you elaborate more on the scholarships outside of UCLA that you applied to and give any advice for people who want to do that too? How did you find them and what did the applications require?
1: Yeah, um, I felt, again, it was just really, really fortunate to be at the public school I was at because they had a really big emphasis on going to college and trying to make college affordable. So there were always, ta- like, all the teachers and all of the administration were always talking about different scholarships you could apply for. They had lists every year. Um, if you're a little OCD like me, there's a big, like, book of scholarship that you can get. And, like, you just Google the big book of scholarship online. Um, and then that kind of is, like, a pretty good resource of all the different scholarships available to you. Um, it is interesting because there's a lot of scholarships recently for certain demographics and this book kind of will like lay out like oh if you are you know of this ethnicity and this background interested in this major this is the perfect scholarship for you um so that's really really cool because they're really encouraging these underrepresented uh demographics to go into college which i love um it is interesting though because there are like fewer scholarships for like white middle class americans just because mm. like there's the thoughts like oh yeah your parents can pay for it so we're not gonna give you scholarship yeah which in a, in a lot of ways makes sense in a lot of ways there are some like white American like middle class americans who like it seems like they should be able to pay for it but they really can't um partly because their financial situation is different than it appears on paper and partly because college is also just so freaking expensive now so there's that too but basically, there's this book. Um, I searched for local online scholarships. I went and talked to my administration, my teachers, about any scholarships that they were aware of. Um, there's a bunch of really good online places as well. So that's kind of what I did to, to make uh, a bunch of stuff. I was applying to a scholarship like every one every two weeks, I think, my senior year. So just really kind of trying to plow through it.
0: And those outside scholarships made a pretty significant contribution of financial aid. Like it was worth it for you to put all that time and effort in.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was like I think seven thousand or eight thousand dollars overall. Wow. Yeah, which is great. For, I mean, UCLA was like, I think it was out of pocket like twelve thousand per year ish. So that's almost a full year paid for UCLA, which is great. That's awesome. Well, one thing I just wanted to mention is um, it was a bit like you mentioned. You asked for like, why did you go to UCLA? Because um, I was actually really considering taking a gap year too after I graduated. But what I realized was a lot of my scholarship wouldn't last for another year. So I kind of pushed me to go to college right then so that I could afford it more. That's something I tell people a lot is to really consider a gap year after graduating high school.
0: Do you regret not doing that?
1: Well, in fact, I did a gap year a year later. So it might have <laughs> saved me some time.
0: <laughs> so were you only at UCLA for one year before you transferred? Can you explain that process?
1: Yeah, I went to UCLA for a year. Um, In a lot of ways, it was great, but in most ways, I did not have a great time. I did not enjoy it. I was kind of pretty miserable. Mm -hmm. Um, So, UCLA, because it's really a huge school, and a lot of the courses are really impacted. This is back when I was taking classes, like, almost, you know, 10 years ago. Um, You could take, like, a quarter off and just, like, go do something, and they were totally fine with it because they were so impacted on the courses. Mm -hmm. So. My second year, my uh, first quarter, I took off and I just deferred that quarter and just hung out at home. And I did a bunch of like, because I was, during that summer, I was like, oh, why am I studying bioengineering? Why am I working so hard to have no life and to be miserable? Um, you know, what's it all kind of for? Because I worked really hard in high school and I just wanted to have more purpose behind why I was doing it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it just, it felt very lonely. Um, so I took a quarter off to really kind of think and pray and like do some like informational interviews and some psychological testing to figure out what could be some good career options for me. Like, how am I gifted? What's my what are my strengths? What are the needs of the world, and how can I kind of bring all of those together? And so after that quarter, I like I made like a list of like at the beginning I made a list of like 100 or 70 different careers. I narrowed it down to like 35. And then I narrowed it down to like 10 and then I did a bunch of informational interviews with people, narrowed down to five. And at that point, I was like, all right, engineering and bioengineering is still on the table, but there's these other options that I really want to check out. Um, so that's when I decided to drop out of UCLA. So at Christmas time is when I said, all right, I'm, I'm not coming back to UCLA. Catch you later.
0: Peace. See ya.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, and at that point, I was like a college dropout for two weeks. I can, uh, you know, put my name on that wall. There's that rebel. That's right. Joined the greats of uh, the college dropouts, and then I enrolled <laughs> immediately in community college. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm not gonna be done. I know I'm gonna get a college degree eventually, so I figured I might as well get some G's out of the way. Um, so I took public speaking, and I think I took linear algebra at CC. Okay. Um, really enjoyed both, and then in the meantime, I started checking out the one of these like these different careers, and just trying to get some experience with them. Because uh, it's one thing to think you like a career in like theory and it's in, really another thing to experience it and, oh definitely yeah, exactly. so I started volunteering at my old high school as a teacher um in a teaching capacity, so I started tutoring people one on one and I started leading like small group discussions and I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but it's like an avid program
0: I haven't heard uh, of it
1: yeah so it's it's a really cool program uh in some public schools in California at least about just like taking underrepresented uh demographics and like helping encourage them to go to college so you give them like different study skills and group skills and um it's just it's a class focused on like how do you learn how to learn how do we help uh give these disadvantaged people more advantages in terms of like one-on-one teaching and extra help as like a study hall and like give them tours to different colleges um it was great. My little brother did it and I got to teach him once in class. So that was really fun. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he was as excited about it, but I was, I had a laugh.
0: <laughs> so how did you decide where to transfer to?
1: Yeah. So I can be, I'll get real quickly, like the five major careers I was interested in were, uh, I figured that that'd probably be a good like background thing. It was teaching obviously. Um, and I had narrowed it down to high school or like college teaching level was kind of like what I was shooting for. It was ministry opportunities as like a campus director and like Christian summer camps, or as like a missionary like my parents were. Um, It was engineering as like a product engineer or development engineer, um, kind of just enacting what other people are are seeing. Uh, It was entrepreneurship and new venture, like business creation and generation and kind of scaling. And then it was being a doctor. Kind of those five major careers. So it was teaching, teacher, engineer, ministry, uh, business person, and then doctor. So all very, very different, but some like, you know, interesting threads throughout them.
0: Yeah, I definitely see a social thread throughout most of those. Maybe not quite engineering stereotypically. And I know you personally, John, and you are very personable and likable, and you get along very well with others and make them feel very comfortable. So I see how all of those fit together.
1: Yeah. And they all have like a very like technical aspect of it too. So it's that weird like balancing of the social and the technical to try to accomplish some kind of goal or help people. Mm -hmm. Um, At least that's how I've kind of always seen it. So I started like checking things out and trying things out uh, that second half of the year what would have been my sophomore year of college, tried out teaching and decided I liked teaching, but not enough to like make it my primary career. I kind of wanted to make it like a, a tertiary or like later retirement career. After Mm -hmm. I've like gone and experienced other stuff, I thought it'd be really cool to come back to teaching and just like be able to bring more to it than just like, this is how you do stuff and this is like different facts and stuff. Um, I don't think that's totally fair to the teaching profession. I think, people can have lots of wonderful impacts as just teachers and like going into teaching. Um, but I just thought I'd like go get some extra miles on my soul and my career before I did that. So part of the reason I transferred to Westmont was, well first it was a, it was a really big change from UCLA. You know, it was UCLA, it was a giant public school and Westmont's a tiny private school. But I figured with the liberal arts education, it kind of prepared me the best for all those different career options. It kind of gave me the most flexibility. like, so you know, I was taking some Bible classes in case I wanted to go to seminary. Um, I was taking some science and physics classes in case I wanted to get a master's or a PhD. I would, there's a chance to take some business classes, um, which I did, and that, so I could get my, you know, some business experience. And then for, uh, you know, Westmont also has like a teaching credential, so I could do that if I figured out something I wanted to do that instead. And I figured for the medicine stuff, oh, there's, well, the odds of being a, wanting to be a doctor are so low. I just won't worry about it. <laughs> so, yeah. So I just kind of didn't worry about that one. But it it made sense to me at the time to transfer to Westmont so I could have all these different options um, for figuring stuff out.
0: And it looks like you landed on engineering physics.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What were those nope. classes like? And what did you enjoy about the program? hmm
1: I really enjoy the engineering physicist, well there's a slight difference between like an engineering mindset and a physicist mindset and I guess I need to preface all this with like I'm still pretty new in my career and these are some pretty big generalizations which aren't entirely fair but I think they're useful so I'm going to talk about them. Um, Generally engineers are concerned with like how do we make it work kind of deal. Um, You know I want to build a bridge, how do I build it so it doesn't crash, how do I build it so that it lasts a while, Um, it's really about like solving for constraints. It's the idea of, I got this much money, I've got this amount of people, I got this amount of time, how do I make the best quality thing I can make? So I really love that because there's a big focus on like tangible action. It's science in action, uh, math in action to accomplish some kind of goal. And I love that about engineering. Um, Physics in general, or in comparison, at least in my experience has been much more about understanding the world and about understanding uh, things from first principles. So it's the idea of, you know, if you simplify, you know, any every model is wrong about the world, uh, but most models can be useful. And so mm-hmm. it's the idea of if you simplify a system down to its core attributes, you can get some really good insight into its future behavior and things that can be a problem or concern going forward. Um, I think math is a, you know, is a, greater subset of physics in that sense so um that i really enjoyed about physics because it kind of came back to that first uh, awakening of appreciation for knowledge and learning in since sense that physics was a great tool set for knowing and understanding the world and kind of how things work and why things work the way that they do and be able to have some insight into things um it's a very technical field very challenging field um But I really enjoyed that aspect of it as well. Um, And it was fun, too, having a very small class. Um, And it was really interesting because Westmont, in particular, has always had a very good ratio of women in, like, these STEM fields. So, I think half of my class was women. I mean, it's only, like, seven of us, but still. (laughs) Still, 50%. (laughs) And that's kind of, that's the stat that Westmont tends to lean on more is the 50%, not the pure number.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, because it's so small, the pure numbers kind of suck.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, So that's kind of, those are the good things, I think, about my experience at Westmont. I think the negative part was something just kind of, uh, it's a a unique challenge of small private schools. And that you're really dependent on a few professors. Yeah. Um, And the physics program, while I was there, was uh, going through some pretty major changes with one of the professors leaving um, suddenly. Um, okay so that's hard yeah yeah it's tough and so like a lot of my major classes were taught by uh, adjunct bummer um, yeah exactly and he was really nice really kind um, but it did feel a bit like oh you know I'm, I'm spending all this time and money to like learn these stuff and like these classes are really easy which is really frustrating yeah um, so I felt like we weren't being very well prepared for the future in terms of like our from our like core coursework
0: That's unfortunate.
1: Um, That's not entirely fair to him. Uh, And he still, I think, is an adjunct for the physics program sometimes. um, He teaches some of the lower division classes. Um, But it's just, that was kind of my experience. Um, Like, there were some times, like, as an example, um, there was a test I walked into, and I just had not studied for the test, um, because I was out just hanging out with people for Westmont just uh, getting to know people and then i like couldn't remember anything in particular for this test so i re from first principles all the different like features of this <laughs> and like <laughs> i got most of the test right and he like made a comment of like hey this is good work i don't know why you rederived everything but you know whatever <laughs> so i think like as a like upper division classes you shouldn't be able to do that um i think that was kind of an issue like you should have to know your stuff really well where yeah. you can't rederive it so in the one sense it was a great like a triumph i guess for my physics education because it's all about deriving from first principles but uh in another sense it was kind of a letdown because I, I like got my grade back i'm like i'm glad i got a good grade but this shouldn't have been possible like i should not have been able to get this <laughs> good of a grade so
0: yeah
1: it's kind of mm-hmm. pros and cons um but in terms of my liberal arts classes which was one of the big reasons i transferred to westmont I loved them, I mean they were phenomenal in every way. I went and took all the upper division business classes like entrepreneurship and venture, executive leadership, business research and forecasting. I took a a special topics on game theory my senior year Um, and they were just phenomenal. They're some of the best classes I've ever taken. Um, And that's kind of what got me interested in entrepreneurship and kind of really fostered that uh, interest of mine.
0: Have you been able to apply those entrepreneur skills in your jobs after you graduated?
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's kind of been my main focus since I graduated Westmont. Okay. Um, so I kind of, I, you know, I t- t- had these five careers. I went to Westmont. Um, I did engineering physics. And I said, oh, I'm kind of interested in enter- entrepreneurship. Let me go learn a bit more about that through these classes and talking to people. Um, really, I mean, really, really enjoyed it. It was a cool, like, intersection of the engineering side of trying to make something happen and trying to help people. And uh a little bit of like the a lot of the like people interaction because you have to understand people and work with people to get stuff done um so i made a quick little dating app for a uh, dating app dating event for the westmont senior class and that was super fun and that was like a very good like example of an entrepreneurial thing um i still kind of want to swing back back around to that and maybe turn that to try to like turn that into a product um but then i went to uh, texas and did a like I joined a chemical manufacturing startup out there. that had a couple different products. They were trying to see if it would land. Um, eventually came back to California and eventually landed in Santa Monica. Startup that was doing, like, taking basic translational research of, like, neuroscience and trying to put it into a clinical context with brain scans.
0: I'd love to hear more um, about and that.
1: My current job... Oh, yeah, yeah. And I'd love to talk about that more later, mm-hmm. too. That's really, really cool stuff. Uh, and my current job is... Uh, So Evidation Health, uh, it's like, it's just starting to grow out of being a startup um, in a lot of ways. It's like an eight-year-old company. Um, They were and have been a startup in the clinical software space. So just trying to make it easier for companies and people to run clinical software, um, clinical studies. So like, yeah, so that's kind of like... My entire career so far post-college has been all startups, all technical startups trying to do something really cool and interesting in a new way um, that kind of helps people. So I think my like startup and entrepreneurship experience at Westmont has been the most formative probably of my like college career.
0: That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Would you recommend anyone or everyone to take some business classes? Like, Do you think it's more widely applicable than just wanting to work in business or run a startup?
1: I think so. Um, I'm not sure if necessarily class, but knowing a little bit about it. And the reason I say that is um, ultimately whether you have a job or whether you start a business – People pay you because you accomplish something and you provide some kind of value.
0: Okay.
1: Um, like for engineers, a, there's a common pitfall of trying to build something because it's cool or because it solves some like technical issue. Um, and engineers, myself included, just really nerd out about that. Like, oh, wow, this is like so cool. <laughs> like, it's like 0.25% faster. Really <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. And that's, I think, a trap because at the end of the day, we are trying to do something meaningful for people and trying to like build something cool. And uh, just because something is technically interesting and technically challenging and a solution is technically like satisfying does not mean you're actually helping people with it. Um, Mm. It doesn't mean people are going to pay for it. It doesn't mean people are going to like, it's going to help people in any way.
0: Makes sense. And
1: I think having understanding of like business and that at the end of the day, a lot of engineers, most engineers Serve sort of a business function of providing value mm-hmm. can do a great job in like really focusing uh, like work efforts. Like you ask your question of, Hey, I need to build this thing. Um, if you at, know something about business, you can be like, well, I need to go check, like how are people going to use this? You know, what's going to be the best way of like designing it and creating it rather than being like, Oh, what's the most like technically interesting part of it? And let me solve that. Cause that's, what's interesting to me as an engineer. So I really kind of appreciate the business backing because it provides a good perspective for me of like, why are we doing this? What's what's the goal? Well, the goal is to bless people. And you know, part of the way we do that is by making it economically feasible for people to use our products and make it useful.
0: So business classes and entrepreneurship provide like an overarching framework for everything.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it's just good to know. Like I think a lot of physicians... In uh, the physician, the medical field right now are recognizing the importance of this perspective. Um, I think there, like, a lot, there's a lot of changes happening in the medical field right now for physicians. A lot of it comes down to like there's just not a good awareness in the field and not a good advocacy for physicians on the business side. I think it's having some pretty big effects.
0: Mm, okay, I see.
1: And we can talk about that later too.
0: Can we circle back around to the job in Santa Monica with the neurological scans? Even though I don't want to study the brain myself, it fascinates me. Yeah, for sure. Can you explain the company's mission overall and what your specific role was?
1: Yeah. I got connected through two people I knew from Westmont, um, part of my graduating class. And uh, the guy who... So I got hired because it it was a weird position. They needed someone who could help write a lot of the programming and software side of the job in that sense it was like a medical informatics startup um, but they also need someone who could do clinical the clinical side who could interact with patients treat patients um run a cl- help manage clinical research study um and those kinds of people don't always overlap it can be hard to find someone with the technical expertise and the social like aspects as well um, so i was a pretty good fit At least it seemed like I was a pretty good fit for that because of that reason. So um, the guy who was running it, major physician, brilliant, brilliant person, um, was like one of the chief residents for UCLA. Um, And so he had been in the field since like the very beginning. Since like the first functional MRIs were being done, and they took like two hours to get like a single image. Um, And he had been in this field for forever, kept up with it, Um, very big believer in the potential it had for helping to drive insight into the human condition and human disease, especially from a neurological and psychiatric perspective. Because there is this weird boundary in the brain of the mental and the physical, and it's kind of hard to like gain insight into a lot of these mental psychiatric issues. And so the idea was uh, functional brain imaging and functional brain understanding will be the key for understanding a lot of these diseases. So I was brought on to help, uh, just kind of just help for the whole startup in every way. Um, It was a tiny startup, not including senior leadership staff. You know, you could probably count it as between two and five people.
0: Wow. Um,
1: Tiny. And that's not including everyone who's like, who transitioned in and then transitioned out too. So I was brought in to replace people. After I left, people were brought in to replace me. So um, overall, it was probably like maybe 15 people total throughout the history of, of that startup. If you were thinking the startup, you know, had a history of like seven to eight years.
0: Okay.
1: Um, a lot of these kind of startups are really hard to like give an accurate history for, because they're always like mutating and growing. Right.
2: Mm.
1: Like it might just be the a physician is hiring and talking to, to research on the side. You know, is that when the startup started or is it when they actually like incorporated Is it when they actually got, like, Series A funding? Is it when they actually first sold their first, like, product? Um, Is it when they sold a a certain kind of product? So it's hard to, like, give an accurate history for this. Um, But basically, he was just, he's been working on this for a long, long time. Um, And he had finally gotten to a, a point where he was starting to get outside interest for his company, for, like, investing or for starting to scale it and grow it, which is cool.
0: So why did you decide to leave that company? And what did you pursue afterwards?
1: Well, it was so part of the reason I took the that position in particular was I had done chemical manufacturing startup out in uh, Texas, and that kind of really blew up my face. It was the technologies themselves were really interesting, but the leadership for that startup was uh, very very difficult to work with,
2: mm. and so
1: when I like. I should have left, like, a week or two in, but I stuck out for three months because I was like, no, like, I can do this. I got, you know, I can handle whatever. And I kind of realized at the end of that, I was like, oh, this is why on sitcoms everyone drinks and hates their job. I I get it now. (laughs) Kind of brutal. But uh, so I kind of, like, when I left Texas, I kind of just needed to, to like, recuperate and heal a little bit. And so, like, after that, I was like, oh, do I really want to do startups and entrepreneurship? That was really difficult and really painful. I'm not sure if I want to do that again. Um, let me check out medicine. And so I moved down to Orange County to, like, try to volunteer at some hospitals, to get some clinical experience, see if I wanted to be a doctor. Um, was about to start at a hospital, and then my sister got married, and they wouldn't let me move the test to, like, gain, like, volunteer status. So I was dropped from the program. Oh, no. Um, yeah. Really kind of weird. And then, but then like a month later, I started my Santa Monica job. So the idea was, Hey, this is like in a clinical setting, I'm working with patients, I'm working with doctors. Um, also got this like startup aspect of it, which I'm still kind of interested in. So it seemed like it kind of all dovetailed together pretty well. It was, it fits my previous career history. It's really interesting. I can have a big impact because I'm balancing this social technical aspect. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be talking and interacting with doctors, with patients, um, I can see if I really like being a doctor, if I really like medicine. Um, it just seemed like a perfect fit.
0: How long were you there?
1: And I was there for a year and three months, which isn't a super long time. It can be a long time for startups. Um, it just kind of depends like hmm. the like saying is every startup year is like three to five like regular career years because you're learning oh. so much and doing so much and they just push you really hard. They run they didn't know that, and eventually I left because. It was kind of a if I do want to do medicine, I need to get on it kind of right now. Um, I need to go to school. I don't need to like wait a long time to figure it out. I just need to get started and get the ball rolling. So eventually I left because I needed to go take prerequisite classes and really kind of lonely in LA. You know, it was weird coming back to, I like came back to Westwood after leaving UCLA um, and had a very similar experience uh, community wise beforehand. That's not entirely mm. fair because I was working really hard, long hours at this, this job, um, and a couple other stuff too, just personal-wise was really difficult uh, with friends and community. So eventually I left because I was just like, all right, I need to go take classes in a place with good community because I am just so tired of moving around and uh, just not having a good community to pour into and be poured into. And that's why I moved to Santa Barbara.
0: Okay. And then you took your job at Evidation Health?
1: Yeah. uh, I moved back to Santa Barbara.
0: Were you trying to do classes at the same time?
1: Uh, Yes. So I moved back to Santa Barbara um, end of 2018, like November 2018. Okay. Um, And then I got my – I started Evidation Health July 2019. It's been just over a year. Um, And so – from when I moved back to Santa Barbara to when I started my education job, I was taking classes at Westmont so that that spring year, mm-hmm. and was just kind of living off savings. Eventually, I was I was also applying for jobs and just couldn't find anything. Um, it's it's an interesting part right after you graduate because there's like a like a like a hole where you have enough experience and enough education where. You're overqualified for some things, but okay. you don't really have enough experience or education to be qualified for other jobs. So like, for example, eventually I got my job working at a coffee shop in Santa Barbara at Phenomenal coffee shop. Anyone who's in Santa Barbara, definitely go. Great. Totally agree. Yes. Um, but it was interesting because I got the job and I was talking with the owner while I was like, I was learning the job and just kind of doing stuff. And the owner's like, oh, you know, what's your background? What do you do? And I said, oh, yeah, my background's kind of in software. And he, like, stopped. Um, and you could tell, like, his perception of me immediately changed. And I later found out li- that he had told the manager, hey, for John, don't train him up any more than you have to because, uh, you know, we're not going to keep him very long.
0: Aw, that's so, really disappointing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was really excited to learn a lot of these, like, really cool, like, barista stuff. And then they they lowered my hours, too. So, like, I couldn't be paying my bills off of the salary I was making the hours I was making so
0: that makes me kind of
1: sad it happens i mean part of it is i mean this kind of goes back to the business like perspective too of from his perspective it made the most sense you want to minimize your turnover you want to invest in people who are going to be there long term if there's a higher risk of one person leaving because they can double or triple their salary elsewhere uh you know that makes total sense
0: it does make sense did they communicate that with you, or did you just have to take it as it came?
1: Uh, you kind of just take it as you can, as you come. So, and but like the manager was is great. Like he's a like this is different than the owner. Owner is also great in his own way, but the manager's phenomenal. He's like the best manager I've ever, one of the best managers I've ever had. He's great. Um, and he kind of just like let me know, kind of under the table, like, hey, this is the situation. So just FYI.
0: Mm. Okay.
1: Yeah. So at that point. I was like, okay, I really need another job so I can pay bills. Um, and that's when I started Evidation, like a month later. So that's kind of nice.
0: So what is that company doing now? It's a clinical software company, right? So they help doctors and hospitals get data from patients?
1: Pretty much, yeah. Um, it's really interesting because I have – It's yeah, it's like the entire job I was doing in Santa Monica – um, but instead of having one person do it, you have 200 people who do it.
0: Wow. Okay. It was,
1: it's like, in that sense, it's been very almost cathartic <laughs> to be like, yeah, the job in San Michael is really tough. It's hard to do that all on your own. And in fact, it's like a multi-billion dollar industry that can easily <laughs> support like 200 people, like a fourth of which are engineers with ridiculous software engineering salaries. So... That was like, it's been very validating and cathartic to be like, these are hard problems to solve. These are hard things to do. Um, so it was, it was cool to like have that insight um, into my previous work at Santa Monica and to be, take that experience into my current job and recognize like the big impact it can have for making people's lives easier and for making it easier to run clinical studies.
0: In that job, were you more on the people side or the coding slash software side of things?
1: The Santa Monica job or my current job?
0: Ah, uh, the current job.
1: This is much more the coding side. So I am not at all associated with the clinical side. um so there's no patient interaction. Um, I am purely building and testing the systems for like our current like job. And I want to like I need to like kind of preface it. I'm a software engineer, but I'm a software engineer in the auto testing automation side of things. Um, you have like two different kinds of testing in software. You have what's called like black box testing or more uh, derogatorily, I guess, monkey testing. Um, It's the idea of like you go in and you just kind of poke it and you see what breaks. Um, Or you go through and you like validate that certain things aren't broken. Um, That's half of like quality assurance. The other half for software engineering is because we're using software and if you know software, you can write software to run your tests for you. Um, And that's where I'm at. So I run, I help write tests that are like run against our product every time there's a change in the software to verify that things haven't broken, um, to double check that things are working right. Um, Yeah, if that makes any sense. So
0: yeah, it does. That's cool.
1: Yeah, it's, it's important part. It's not as like, like a lot of like software engineers don't like testing automation as much um, because you're not building things. You're kind of just making sure that things aren't broken.
0: Um, mm, okay. But
1: it's been really cool in my career and I have really appreciated it because it's hard to make products that are easily testable, um, especially yeah. for software. So I think it's a great perspective for me to have currently as I like transition into back into building stuff.
0: So what was it like going back to college and being back with undergraduates?
1: <laughs> oh, man. It's, it was weird. It was really, really weird. Um. Oh. I mean, it wouldn't have been weird at community college, because there are plenty of people my age or older during my classes at community college. It wouldn't have been that weird at UCLA either, because you don't really care about who else is in your class. You're just kind of like going to class. Um,
0: Yeah, Westmont is very much the stereotypical just graduated high school age group. I've seen a few people over the age of 22 or 23, but they are very few and far between, unfortunately. I kind of wish we had more age diversity, but we don't.
1: Yeah, so it's kind of it was it was a weird like feeling. It's nice because like Westmont peeps are just they're great and they're awesome most <laughs> of the time. Um, so I wasn't super worried going back, but it was an interesting feeling. And actually, I didn't want to go back to Westmont originally. Um, I, oh. Yeah, I realized I needed to take prerequisites. So I started looking into all these different programs, like post-bac programs. That's like the classic, like, oh, I was an English major, but I want to be a doctor. I need the classes. So go do a post program where it's like very focused. You just do your prerequisites. Okay. Um, and they kind of help. A lot of times they'll have like agreements with certain medical schools where if you do well enough, then you'll go into it. There's things called special master's programs, um, which is basically like a post-grad degree that you can get, but it's focused on medicine and clinical work. And a lot mm-hmm. of times they have agreements with medical schools where if you do well enough, you get matri- automatically matriculated. Um, I could have done a special master's program, but that's really expensive. And a lot of the times, like, you kind of have to pay for that. It's like mm. an additional year of undergraduate school or graduate school. Um, and I actually was overqualified for post-bacc programs. Oh. So they like, I would, like, email them and say, hey, I'm interested in taking classes. And they'd be like, oh, you've taken too many classes uh, sorry. You have to either retake all of them as our part of our program, um, or or someone just said, yeah, we're not going to let you in because you've taken too many classes.
0: Oh, that surprises me.
1: Yeah, it, it was really weird. Um, so basically, I was down to like, all right, I guess I'm gonna like either do a special master program, which I do not have the money to do, or I'm gonna like try to roll my own prerequisite postback program at like community college.
0: With all of these options, how did you land on going back to Westmont?
1: Well, I went and talked to uh, the pre-med advisor, Dr. Cantrell, and I, I kind of asked her point, point blank, like, hey, like, how does taking community college classes look compared to like a four-year, like a post-bac kind of program?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I don't know, maybe it's a little biased, but she was like, yeah, you really need to take them out a four-year for your science classes. Um, okay. Because, you know, fair or not fair, the, like, medical field, like, pre-med route just is, it's, you know, it's a rat race. And a lot of that depends on, like, prestige of your classes and where you took them and how well you did. Um, so I kind of was taking that advice to heart and be like, all right, I got to do a four-year somewhere. Um, but I also really need, like, community. So I wonder if, like, I come back to Santa Barbara and take them back to Westmont. Seemed like a pretty good like combination because I you know really missed my community in Santa Barbara. Um, so I thought maybe I can come back and take classes at what on the hill and get plugged back in.
0: Do you regret doing that as awkward and weird as it was?
1: Hmm. Well, it was interesting. I moved back to Santa Barbara and almost immediately, slash before I got there, most of my friends and crew left. <laughs> so oh no. that was a bummer. <laughs> yeah. That's
0: terrible. <laughs> really
1: just can't catch a break. <laughs> mm. But, uh, it was, they're like, there's still people left, um, like in, in, in town. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like a huge issue. It was more just, you know, new people. So Rob Linkman, part of my church. So I got like, plugged in with him and a couple other people, plugged into Ocean Hills. Um, so I'm not sure if I'd say I regret Westmont. I mean, part of it is this perspective I've got on my own career. Of, okay. I've taken so many twists and turns in it. Uh, you know, when I let, graduated high school and went to UCLA, I never thought I'd drop out. Uh, when I dropped out, I thought I would know what I was going to do, and I didn't. When I transferred to Westmont, I thought things would be smooth sailing. I didn't. I never thought I'd like move twelve times in ten years. I never thought I'd have the experiences I've had at my different startups and my different jobs. I never thought I'd have the struggles I've, I've had. Um, but when I look at the like transition periods those times I like had to make a choice of like I'm staying my, at my job or I'm leaving my job or I'm taking this job. Um, kind of the way you do it is, or at least the way I've done it is I just ask the best questions I can to get the best information I can so I can make the best choice I can. Um, and after you kind of do that, um, well a lot of people want to like base their choices, like did I make a good choice or bad choice based off the results? Um, that's hmm. really not fair because you can't really control results you can't really control outcomes yeah um you can control like your methodology for deciding things and for making choices and for thinking through things but you just you don't know what's going to happen so in one sense like i wouldn't say most of the choices i've made were like great outcomes um like going to texas for this chemical manufacturing startup that like really like really hurt me pretty bad like I I made the I asked the best choices I best questions I could to get the best information to make the best choice and it didn't work out and that's how it goes um, similar to Santa Monica in a lot of ways I don't necessarily re- like I'd only really regret a choice if I knew I was making it for the wrong reasons I think I think that's probably the way I'd phrase it
0: Okay that's and I've helpful. definitely done those
1: before um, but I'm not sure if I would rank any of those previous choices as that makes any sense
0: yeah it does make sense and it's really helpful can you share some examples of the types of questions you ask yourself or others to make those good decisions
1: yeah like I, i it really comes down to like my fundamental biases as like a physicist and as an engineer of like i try to think of first principles like what am i doing and why am i doing it like uh, you know, when, the, when I dropped out of college, I was thinking, well, why am I studying? Why am I getting a degree? Um, and the answer was kind of like, well, I'm getting a degree so I can like use what I learned to help people out in the world. And I said, well, how should I pick my degree? And it's like, well, it should probably like tailor, like it should probably dovetail a little bit with what's important in the world, like understanding stuff. Like if I learned how to do underwater basket weaving, but no one needs underwater <laughs> basket weaving. That might not be a super valuable major to learn. Uh, on the other hand, you know, maybe we really need lots of you know nuclear engineers. But if I suck at nuclear engineering, maybe I should find a place, another place that we would, like really need better understanding and better like people. So it's kind of like trying to balance those, and then just doing the best I can to like, like I'd ask people like, hey, like, how did you decide your like major? And just asking for lots of advice, um, trying to be holistic in terms of like the different options I, I, I get. Um, like when I had my list of careers, I went and did informational interviews with people in those careers to ask them about their jobs. And like, do you like it? Do you not like it? Um, there's been a lot of work I've done like foundationally, like Stumbling Upon Happiness is a great book I really recommend to people because it okay. goes into like how do people – Like, how are people happy? What does it mean to be happy? What are some good, like, unconscious, like, biases people have against being happy and, like, choices that they make that tend to, you know, hamstring them for being happy? Um, Mm -hmm.
0: It's,
1: like, a big part of my life has been trying to decrease the unknown unknowns I've got. Um, Okay. Try to get it to known unknowns. And then from there, it's easier to, like, develop questions that can, like, figure those things out. I guess. I don't know. It's a very, very like abstract way of, of dealing with like making choices. Um, But a lot of it is just trying to like make good questions that answer things that you think you need to think about, get advice from people who are doing it or have done it. And then just be very kind of kind to yourself too, as you make the choice.
0: Oh, definitely. Thank you, John, for sharing all of that. I think it is very helpful for people who are in the same or a similar place and want to figure out what the heck to do that will be fulfilling for them, <laughs> but also where they have some balance in life and are surrounded by a good and supportive community.
1: Yeah, it's it's tough. It's hard these days, especially. I mean, it just, it's interesting, like, culturally-wise, like, back in, you know, 100, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, it was really easy. You did what your parents did. That's kind of, that was it. Or mm-hmm. if they're, like, a couple of you, one of you did ministry, one of you did, like, the army um but nowadays, it's kind of the curse of prosperity of we have so much choice. Um, and it's a good thing, but it can be a really overwhelming thing. And I think a lot of millennials and Generation Z are, are feeling that. Um, so I always recommend kind of two really big books. Uh, mentioned it before, Stumbling Upon Happiness is a great way of thinking about how do you like get rid of these unknown unknowns. How do you think about happiness um, and take out a lot of these like really easy pitfalls for being feeling fulfilled. And then The Defining Decade by Meg J is also phenomenal. Um, that's more geared for people like entering their 20s or in their 20s thinking about like, what should I be doing with my life right now? And how should I be like approaching it? And how should I be thinking about it? So both very, very good books and resources.
0: Thank you for those recommendations. And I'll have those linked in the show notes below. So next, I have a segment asking guests if they have any funny or embarrassing moments from work or college that they're willing to share. Cue the music. Welcome to Lab Laughs, bringing the crazy, funny, and jaw-dropping moments from the lab to you.
1: Oh gosh, uh, oh, I need to think about that real quick. So crazy, like, moments, uh... Oh, there's one. <laughs> so I guess I, think I, can, I I'm pretty sure I can share this. So my chemical manufacturing uh, job out, it, out in Texas. Um, it, one of the main products was a like road technology. The idea of you'd use this instead of asphalt, and you would use like the the like stone and rocks that are already there, and you'd mix it with this chemical and make it like super hydrophobic um, and super strong. Um, but one of the big challenges was finding a way to mix it really well so you could spray it and you could like you know work it into the dirt so they bought this like special tank uh, this this truck that you they'd use for like lime spraying and like spraying limes on on, uh, on the ground and we needed people to like go in and help like mix these chemicals so I put on like this hazmat suit and climbed to the top of this giant like one-story truck and they would use a crane to grab a like a one-ton two-ton bag of chemicals pull it up lift it hold it over the hole and i would grab a machete and like rip into the bottom of it to like put the the chemicals into the truck
0: wow Um, it was crazy
1: man it's nuts i saw some pictures somewhere but uh it was also really fun too It was very like hands-on but that strikes me as very that was pretty crazy just that whole job of like Working with these chemicals and like climbing over these chemical bags is a really, really interesting balance of like the technical side of like working in a lab and being out in the field. I'm like, uh, why isn't this working? I don't know. Let's just throw it on the ground. See what happens.
0: Yeah, that sounds like uh, it's an appropriate episode yeah, for Dirty much. Jobs, if anyone remembers.
1: <laughs> yeah, it would have been. Yeah, it would have been great for, for Dirty Jobs. So uh, very, very fun. This is, like, in, like, Texas heat, too, so it was...
0: Wow. Yeah, it was
1: crazy. Very exhausting.
0: So, if the coronavirus begins to settle down and we can do things safely again, what is next for you?
1: Hmm, That's a good question. Um, so, my, like, current job is software, and software has the unique position of, like, you don't have to really be in person. You can kind of be anywhere mm-hmm. in the world. And so my company and a lot of the industry has been, like, figuring out, like, hey, should we, like, go back to the office or should we not? Um, you know, we don't really have to. Oh,
2: so I think, like, okay. IBM
1: said from now on, if you – or no, I think it was Confluence or Jira said, if hey, you don't have to ever come back to the office if you don't want to. And, like, Google said, oh, not till, like, the end of 2021. Do you have to come back to the office? Similar for, like, IBM. So my company's been deciding, like, all right, like, what do we want to do? Um, and they kind of made this, their Their current position is if you want to be anywhere in the U.S., we're okay with it. So you can move anywhere you want to move to and it'll be just fine. So I'm trying to figure out where to kind of, I guess, move to next um, and what makes the most sense. So like I said, it'd be really cool to like go see more of the U.S. Um, I really love being down here with family and, uh, you know, pool parties with the nieces and nephews are just a blast. Um, uh, but I also really miss Santa Barbara too, so I'm trying to figure it out. So Santa Barbara probably more than anywhere else in the world right now feels like home after leaving Brazil. So yeah.
0: So is medical school on the back burner again?
1: I don't know. So that this whole like pandemic thing has been really interesting because you know being on this the like non-traditional pre med track, I've been plugged into a lot of different forums on like medicine like pre-med and medical school and residency and just medicine in general. And the pandemic has been such a pressure cooker for issues in the medical field currently. Um, It's been really interesting. Like I mentioned earlier in the the talk, um, doctors, I think in the past, haven't had a great understanding of the business side of things. Um, So there's a lot of changes right now in the medical field, I think because of that. Like, there's increasing uh, responsibilities for mid-levels, so be nurse practitioners and physician assistants, where they're giving them increased independence for uh, patient care and, like, Mm -hmm. prescribing of drugs and other things. And there's some really big pushback in the physician community, um, kind of on two different levels. One, very selfishly, you know, the mid-levels are encroaching on physician territory, right? Like, it's always been the job of the physician to prescribe or do other things. Yeah. Um, they're naturally threatened by mid levels taking that because they're taking their responsibilities and in effect taking their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, in a very like good sense, though, physicians are really concerned for patients. You know, Physici- physicians get a lot of very like targeted, dedicated clinical hours to deal with these choices and make these decisions. And they're obviously realistically concerned that these mid levels, without that experience, are going to be making these choices.
0: Yeah, um, it makes sense.
1: And ultimately, this is a, these are business issues. Um, They're issues about supply and demand of physician spots and training programs. It's supply and demand of physician salaries for hospitals. It's supply and demand of uh, medical care in rural America and the need for medical care, and there's just not enough, enough physicians. Um, it's an issue of representation of the physician community to uh, the wider industries, administration, and hospitals, and administration and government. Um, so it's been really – and there's, like, all these pre-med changes, too, with Casper and Vita and the MCAT changes. And, I mean, you we've already talked about, like, you know, it's a kind of a rat race to go pre-med. Um, I have one class left that I need to take, English 101, because even though I've taken all these advanced English classes, they don't count. Yeah, I have to take English 101, oh. um, which is just a little – in a lot of ways, really ridiculous.
0: It's silly. Um,
1: yeah. So there's a lot of like, it's a very, uh, it's not a great system the way we've got it in the US. And I don't think anyone's really happy with it, honestly, um, except whoever's making money off of it. But again, that's kind of the business yeah. perspective. So, I mean, it's, it's hard for me because, you know, <laughs> it's been really interesting going to my job for the past year and being like, I'm, I'm making a difference in the clinical world. I don't get yelled at. I don't get like talked down to my hours are reasonable. Like they have chocolate almonds for us in the break room whenever I want. (laughs) Uh, It's really, it's nice. You know, it's nice because I remember how it was as a clinical research coordinator on the pre-med track in Santa Monica. You know, I remember the long hours and kind of honestly the emotional and verbal abuse. Um, It's hard to be like, yeah, I want to go back to that. (laughs) So because I think, you know, the physician community doesn't do a great job of taking care of their own um, in terms of, like, wanting to pr- promote wellness. I mean, suicides are a huge issue in the physician community and the medical community in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of, like, underlying issues in that field. And, yeah, I don't know. It's it's it's, it's interesting. Like, we got one friend, one mutual friend, um, who's interested in doing an MD, PhD. And... That seemed like a really interesting track. Um, and I've thought about that for like my medical future is if I went and got an MD, but then practiced or applied medicine in like a tangential field. Like if I came back to my company with an MD and said, all right, I'm going to be a liaison between like the software world and the medical world. And we're going to like get better uh, like EMR software. We're going to get better clinical software. We're going to start to integrate these wearable devices into like, hospital program so we can get better information um that might be a good way of both practicing medicine in a really tangible way while avoiding a lot of these like major issues in medicine with like patient physician burnout and
2: mm-hmm. uh
1: you know underrepresentation and uh encroachment on physician positions by mid-levels so i don't it's just kind of like a lot to think about in terms of stuff yeah um but that's all kind of like a year away. The plan was always to take a year off to both study for the MCAT and just uh, make some money. So if I do go to med school, I can pay off some debt before I make it. So,
0: Well, it sounds like you've got a good plan lined up.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of more things to think about. So,
0: Yeah, well, hopefully you have um, some time to think about those and process and consider how the world is changing rapidly currently
1: yeah I think probably like the biggest change with me getting older has been just more self love for like hey i you know I'm doing the best I can, and that's the best I can do, and that's okay, you know, I don't have to make it in these different arenas you know I don't have to be a doctor to have self worth I have self worth right now, you know, mm-hmm. I don't have to do a lot of these things. um I'm trying my best and I'm trying to be thoughtful and reasonable about it. Um, I'm asking for advice and trying to get help and I think that's been really really nice so I'd I'd encourage that for a lot of people too as much as you can and it's hard when you're early 20s Uh, it's still hard for me so
0: yeah it's a really healthy perspective and it's still hard for me as well and I know that I can do a lot better at that in the last episode with Amanda her and I talked about how grades don't define you. We both very much agree on that, that standardized tests and work output does not define who you are as a person because humans are not machine. We measure the value of machines based on their efficiency and work output, but humans are not machines. And that is what makes us so beautiful and unique. And thank you so much for sharing that wisdom of being kind to yourself and loving yourself right where you're at and realizing the best that you can do While still being healthy, taking time for yourself, sleeping well, exercising, and spending time with loved ones, that's the sweet spot. But also, if you are a person for whom work is your life and that is very fulfilling for you, I'm not saying don't do that. But from my perspective and John's and other people that I've talked to... I think that we need to get rid of the societal pressure that you have to be the best and work 80 or more hours a week to be successful and a meaningful as a person. And that strenuous work required, that is not true. At least I don't think that it should be true.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. Absolutely. Um, I think that's why, like, the business perspective is a great, like, balance that too. Because um, it's, it's, it's a way of, like, trying to balance that of, like, hey, I, I want to, like... It's important. I need to value myself and value self care. But I also need to provide value so I like my job makes sense and like I'm helping people. So
0: mm-hmm. And on the topic of kindness, I want to ask you two questions to wrap mm-hmm. up the show. What is a recent act of kindness someone oh, has sure. shown you? And when was the last time you showed kindness to somebody else?
1: Kindness, been shown kindness, showing other people kindness. Um I guess I don't know. It's kind of like, it is kindness, but I really enjoyed it. I love kind of, so I've been doing a bunch of babysitting for my older brothers and their kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just so that, you know, it's tough being a parent and like, kind of like on the job 24-7. So the idea was just let them get out and have a date night and just have fun and just relax. Um, Yeah. That was really, really fun. Uh, Yeah. And for some reason, my nephews and nieces really like me. And so they're always asking (laughs) me, hey, can you stay over? You know, we'll have pancakes in the morning. Don't leave. So... Yeah, it's, it's really fun and encouraging, and uh, it's, a, it's a kind thing for me to do, um, but it's very fulfilling, too, so I'm, I'm happy to do it. Um, I think a kind thing that someone's shown me... Well, it's kind of like a... It's a kind... I really like this because it's a kind thing, but it's also a very smart thing, and it ties in with the business. Oh, that's perfect. It's a great... Oh, this is a great way to sum it up. So, uh, pandemic happened. Um, I was going crazy living in my own apartment. I came down to Orange County... But there's a lot of uncertainty of like, hey, when's Santa Barbara going to open up? And if it does open up, uh, you know, are people going to need to go back to work and go back to the office? And so this is before my company said, yeah, I work wherever. So I was like, oh, no, what do I do? I'm like, I want to be down here, but like I left my lease. How, where am I going to live? So uh, there's a friend of mine I've got in Santa Barbara, and he wanted to live with like live together. And so he said, hey, do you like want this room? Um, if you don't want it, we need to get someone else. I said, I kind of do want it, but it kind of doesn't make sense for me to pay a full price. So we're doing what's in effect a uh, financial option where I pay a lower rate to store stuff there and kind of just basically reserve my, my spot. Um, and then whenever I move in, we just up it to the regular rate. Um, so this way, it's kind of like a, it's a win-win where I get to be down here and not paying full price for a, a rent spot. They get to have, you know, a a Mm assured amount of, like, income that can help with paying the full, like, rent for the house. Mm -hmm. But they also have one less person while I'm not there. Um, So that was kind of both. It was kind of them to offer and kind of us to, like, work through it. It also, like, ties in with, like, a lot of the business needs on my side, on their side. And it was just kind of a a cool thing to do, I think. So, So that's something that he offered or he, like, mentioned, hey, we could probably do this. And so we kind of worked on it together. And I think that's been, it's been like awesome. So, you know, when it's like the definition of win, win, win all the way around. Um, yeah. So that's been, I think, really, really cool.
0: Well, I'm really excited. Do you have that option?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'd love to go back to Santa Barbara. So, but yeah, there's, it's, it's hard to know. There's lots of different options. Um, that's probably how I'm wired. Just looking at the different options and uh, saying, what's the most exciting? What's the most interesting? What's the most beneficial to other people thing i could do and trying to do that
0: yeah especially if you can do your work and travel
1: oh yeah that'd be great yeah i'd love to i mean i'd love to eventually do southeast asia for a while and live there for a couple years or get a boat and just sail around the world while doing work oh that'd be great
0: oh that sounds like the ultimate experience
1: yeah that'd be pretty fun
0: well john it was great to have you on the show thank you so much for sharing your advice and wisdom and being so open and vulnerable about your journey and the craziness that is school. Um, And I think that your philosophy on making career choices is very well-developed and very helpful. And I know that I can take a lot out of that. So thank you so much. So if you haven't already, please go follow at the pipette profiles on Instagram to see some hilarious science memes updated daily and to know when I post a new episode. Until next time, be kind and keep learning hey,
2: don't bite yourself off